fiddle students starting out would be much better served getting a good bow to get a feel of what a good bow is. You play the violin with the bow. You need to know <laughs> how to use a good bow and what a good bow is. And a lot of, uh, rather than spending loads of money on a fiddle and getting a mediocre bow, I'd say that the smart thing to do is get a good bow and the, the rest will follow. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. In the autumn of 2017, Paul and I traveled to Ireland to perform and interview musicians and violin makers for the Rosin the Bow project. One of the people we interviewed was Noel Burke, a renowned violin bow maker who is also the younger brother of the gifted traditional Irish fiddler, Kevin Burke. Noel lives in Rathnapish Townland in County Carlow, 84 kilometers southwest of Dublin, and we met at his studio behind his home to do the interview. Well, I was born into a house uh, where Irish music was uh, a very important subject. My father was passionate about uh, traditional Irish music, and my brother is Kevin Burke, the traditional Irish fiddle player, and we were all uh, reared uh, playing music. And this was in London, mostly? In London, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we all were born and reared in London, of Irish parents. But it was a very Irish household, and there's lots of music. And, and my father was absolutely stone-mad about music. And he <laughs> tried very hard to instill that in all of us from a very early age, and, and succeeded to, with most of us anyway. And my mother was uh, a tailor. A very good tailor. She was a dressmaker and suit maker. So um, that's where my uh, uh, interest in craft came from. As a very early, at a very early age, I wanted to make stuff. I was always the kind of kid that was mucking around, banging nails into bits of wood or trying to figure out how a table would be made or a chair would be made. I was just interested in that sort of thing and uh through the 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 in the irish um, music scene in london there was a friend of my father's tony martin who was a violin maker and he supplied kevin with his fiddles until uh, for half of his career anyway and the the most of the irish uh, traditional fiddle players in london or in england would all know Tony Martin, and his house was a very busy house with Irish traditional fiddle players. And we'd go up and visit once a year or so. And through him, I became interested in violin making. Plus, my brother was a fiddle player, so there was... And he was older than us. Kevin was 15 years older than me. So when he was 18, I was, I was three. He left the house when he was 20, so I was five. And um, all around the house, there were like on the top of wardrobes, there'd be fiddle cases with fiddles in or broken fiddles or bits of bows lying around. Or, you know, up in the attic, there, was a, there must have been three or four fiddle cases in the house. And me being interested in making stuff, I'd just look at them and study them. And, and um, Your brother had classical training. He did. And did you go through that stage? Yeah, yeah. I, I played classical flute until I was 18. So I had that formal background. And uh, um, when I was about 12, I started playing wooden flute as well. So I was playing classical and Irish. And the Irish took over eventually. I haven't played classical music in a long time. I do still have the flute. But uh, because I was playing the flute... I uh, became interested in the instrument, in making the instrument. So I 
when I left school at 18, I went to college in England. There was a three-year full-time course in woodwind, woodwind instrument making and technology, they called it. It was basically a making and repair course of the five woodwinds, flute, clarinet, oboe, bassoon, and sax. And we'd learn, well, we spent three years rep make, uh, repairing uh, those five instruments and making Bohm system clarinets. Uh, I, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it and learned an awful lot. But one of the things I learned is I did not want to spend the rest of my life making flutes. It was too machine orientated. It's it's uh, and uh, there was too much metal work. The key work takes up most of the time, and I want I, I was much more interested in working with wood, and I didn't want to be a machinist. So I left college with kind of mixed feelings. I didn't really know what I was going to do next. And um, uh, when I arrived after leaving college, when I arrived in London. My brother Kevin happened to be visiting the parents on his way to Paris. And uh, as I wasn't doing anything, he suggested I come along with him because it'd be a bit of fun. There was a wedding going on in Paris. And so I went over there with Kevin. As it turned out, the guy getting married was a bow maker. And there were three or four French bow makers at this wedding and a couple of violin maker, French violin makers and we were two or three days in the, in Paris. So after the wedding, I went to visit a couple of these uh, makers because they were interesting and friendly people. And I knew absolutely nothing about bow making. I'd never considered bows that anyone sat down and made these things, which I think is interesting in itself. Most lay people are very aware of the craft of violin making, but the bow is just, it's there in the case also, but it tends to be not noticed because the violin is obviously sent, takes center stage. But uh, I, uh, one of those guys, uh, one of those bow makers was an American guy named Charles Espy, who's uh, one of the leading bow makers in the world. And he was, uh, um, I asked him if I could come and visit him in his workshop. So I went down to visit him in his workshop. And at that time, he was working with uh, Stefan Tomaschaux, who's one of the great uh, names in French bow making. And they were sharing a workshop, or uh, rather Charles was working in uh, Stefan's workshop. So I went to visit them and uh, was immediately fascinated by what they were doing. As soon as I opened the door, the, the atmosphere in the place, it was like going back a couple of hundred years. And these were very, very friendly, relaxed people, but what they, it was a place of work. They were working, and that really appealed. They weren't messing around. There was no... They were taking what they were doing extremely seriously, even though we were chatting away and... Uh, and also what they were doing was uh, extremely difficult. And that really turned me on. It's, it's uh, after coming from the woodwind thing where it's all uh, milling machines and big lathes and uh, twiddling knobs and dials, working as a machinist, there, there was no machines in uh, Stefan's workshop at all and as a result there's a great reliance on hand skills the 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 craft of French bow making developed uh, 250 years ago up until that point mid up until the mid 18th century it was kind of a, um, uh, the violin makers would make the bows the specialist bow maker didn't come on the scene until around 1750 and and, the, Fran and France is where this the is great bow France, making yeah. came from. Right? Yeah, yeah. The the craft started in um, Mircourt in the Vosges in eastern France, and the violin making first developed there. French violin making, mainly because the it was on the trade routes. Anyone coming from the east through Europe to Paris would come through 
Mirkor. So they it tended it was a wealthy affluent town because there was wealthy affluent people coming through, and uh, uh, the great uh, soloists of the day would come if they were travelling from Rome to Paris. They'd come through Mirkor on the way, and so they had contact with the musicians and uh, the the bow making uh, craft grew like a cottage industry where uh, the workshops would be very small there'd be one or two or three makers in the workshop uh, the master apprentice thing where uh, an apprentice would learn from the master and pass it on uh, was how there was no school for example and so how is the wood um, arriving into this world the wood that the bows are going to be made from well um the in the first half of the 18th century they were experimenting with all sorts of different woods up until that point we'd only had european woods but when the uh, more exotic woods from south america and africa started arriving in europe bow makers and instrument makers started experimenting with these different woods and uh, a very famous name in the bow making in french bow making is francois xavier tort and he is given the honour of uh, selecting Pernambuco as the wood of choice for for uh, Pernambuco for uh, bows. Other bowmakers had used Pernambuco, but before, but he was the first one to settle on this. And this material. wood was this wood was coming into France. It was coming into the dye. docks in Paris, yeah, to be used as a dye. Exactly, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, in the textile industry, it was. It had a red dye, and up until that point. Uh, red cloth was very expensive. The white kings wear, are associated with re- wearing red robes. It was very expensive. That's why we roll out the red carpet. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Something. <laughs> mm. yeah, there's definitely something expensive about red. And so they started bringing it into Europe in uh, industrial quantities from Brazil. Actually, to the point where it changed the economy of Brazil to such a degree that they named their country Brazil after the tree. Pau Brasil is the is Pernambuco in in Brazil. Pau Brasil Brasil means um, embers, like in a fire, because the wood is red, and when it gets when it gets wet, it uh, it creates this red dye. So they call the tree Pau Brasil, like the embers of a fire, the red embers of a fire. And uh, they named their country after it. It had the export of that raw material had such an effect on the economy of the country. It'd be like if the United States was called tobacco. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or cotton. Or, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, uh, going, so this history, and, and we're, we're combining, we're weaving together two histories, your personal history, uh-huh. along with uh, the, the history of bow making in France. And it's just by coincidence or destiny. And I always, as I said, when I came in, I'm always fascinated. What is destiny? Are these things accidental that you just happen to be in France for a, a wedding? And this happens to be the place that bow making reached such a high degree of, uh, of competence. And then you have these great bow makers you met. Yeah, I I always say it was luck that I happened to meet those guys. But it's uh, down to the individual as well, how you react to that luck, whether you want to take it on board or just see it as an opportunity, or I could have just as easily have walked away from it. Where When I left that workshop, Chuck said, uh, you should be a bowmaker. And... Um, just because he saw something in me that uh, he thought might work as a, as a in this trade, you know. And uh, I was 21 at the time, and uh, my only plan at that time was to go to America. I had a brother and a couple of cousins living in America, and I was going to go to America and just muck about. That was my plan. And so I said, thanks very much, but not right now. Because I'd literally just finished uh, my three years of flute making the previous week. So the idea of starting a new trade now, 
I wasn't going to do that. We call it now. You needed a gap here. So I, I did, I did. And I ended up uh, working as a cabinet maker on Nantucket, Nantucket Island, Massachusetts, for two years. I did that. And after uh, two years uh, on Nantucket, I had an accident on a table saw. I was very lucky not to do some serious damage to my right hand and I'm a musician I play the flute so I, I, I quit I never worked as a carpenter after that day again my hand was all patched up and everything was fine but I figured I'd used all my luck up so <laughs> I quit I working this. as a carpenter <laughs> and I the only thing I could think to do was to call Charles Espy that guy I met in the bone making workshop in Paris a couple of years ago and I called him up and he said uh, come up and uh, we'll talk about it so I travelled up to Seattle I drove up to Seattle and uh, went out for lunch with Charles and uh, we were talking about anything and everything except bone making and whether he would take me on. And I was really nervous. Because if he, if he said no, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. So uh, I was nervous about broaching the subject. So we, uh, I didn't say anything. And we were talking about music and uh, all sorts of stuff. And uh, we went out to lunch, came back to lunch, from lunch, back to his workshop, sat down in the workshop. He went off to make a cup of coffee. And we still hadn't said anything. I'd been there for a couple of hours at this stage. Still didn't know if he was going to take me on again. He came out with a couple of cups of coffee and then he said, uh, when do you want to start? And I said, now. Because I had absolutely nowhere else to go. And he said, okay, you'll need a bench. Uh, and he told me where the lumberyard was. And I drove down to the lumberyard, got some lumber and built a workbench and then sold the car. So I knew I'd have no income for the next few months. And that's how I started my apprenticeship there with Charles. So the car would keep you there too. To, I mean, this was something you're going to immerse yourself in. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, ne I never did anything by halves. If, I was, if I'm going to have a go <laughs> at this, I put everything into it. So, yeah. Uh, that's a great story. Kevin Burke plays the fiddle with a bow made by his brother, Noel. Let's listen to him play a portion of a tune titled Minnie Foster. He's accompanied on the guitar by Cal Scott. Let's go back just a little. Yeah. How does one bowmaker teach another bowmaker? Or how did Charles teach you? Because so much of this, I think, is developing an eye for that beautiful um, shape of a bow. Yeah. Because uh, I know some people can look at a bow across a room and, and anyone else would see 20 bows, they would all look almost exactly the same. You yeah. can look at one and see yeah. a special quality. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that along with the method and everything else that go the materials is that's another aspect of bow making that you learn when you spend time making bows. You learn about their aesthetic aesthetic appeal and the stylistic different stylistic schools among the French bow makers. They all had their individual character because it comes from a different time bow making. It's pre-industrial revolution. 
So I think people back then thought in a different way. Nowadays, everything is uh, automatically square. If something's not square, you notice it because it's uh, everything's made, everything's mass produced. So things are straight and square. Back in that, those days, it wasn't like that. There's nothing on a on a bow that is square, for example, because it's 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 made by eye. You're uh, you have to trust in your your eyes, whereas nowadays we we tend not to. Uh, it's a skill you have to learn that's specific to any of those old trades. Violin making is exactly the same. That aspect of it, anyway, is uh, you have to learn to train your eye. And that takes decades. So you can learn the method and you can learn how to work with the materials and everything else. But uh, an experienced eye takes a, takes a long time to understand uh, proportion and to make a bow that's pleasing and that works well make something that's beautiful which is the is the goal with most bow makers they want to make something uh, there's an element of ego in us all i think and it comes through there you see it in the in the finished object so going back to charles and the way he taught you uh, i mean i have heard stories of for the first month or two with someone that you're learning from, you might just make the frog. You make frog after frog after frog. Yeah. Uh, but how did, Charles, what was his technique for teaching? Because he has taught some other people that are he has. He's extremely few, good. He's, he's taught um, most of the leading bow makers in, in uh, America have spent time in Charles Espy's So give me a shop. sense of his... His uh, that well, ability. He, Chuck is a unique person, and uh, he's brilliant. And uh, he doesn't do anything without giving a lot of thought and uh, figuring out how best to utilize his time. And I was the first person that he taught, and so he spent a lot of time figuring out what the best way to do it was. And then when we sat down, he said, right, this is what we're going to do. He explained to me what we're going to do. And he um, he just started making a bow rather than um, having me make a bunch of bits of a bow or uh, make a, go through exercises or nothing like this. We just sat down and he started making a bow. And he would demonstrate, the first thing every morning, he would demonstrate maybe half an hour he'd met of making a bow the first so it was say on the very first day he made he roughed out a frog blank roughed out a piece of ebony and made a ferrule it took him about an hour to do that and i'd be sitting next to him watching him do that and i could ask all the questions i wanted to ask while he was doing that and write everything down taking loads of notes and then i had to go off to my bench and do what I'd just seen him do twice. So I was making two bows, he was making one. And when he'd finished his hour demonstration, he'd put that aside and carry on for the rest of the day doing his own work, making making something else, making other bows. But the demonstration bow would be put to one side every day. And there was I'd spend the rest of the day doing what he'd shown me in an hour, doing that twice. And then the following morning, we'd come in again and he'd pick up the bow and carry on from the stage he'd left it the previous day. And doing working like that, it took us three months, I had two bows. We started in September and I had two bows made at Christmas. Those two bows took three months. What was the financial understanding of how this would work? Because he was teaching you Mm -hmm. and... uh can you speak to that? Yeah, uh, there was no uh, money changed hands, but I did um, some. Uh, I, I'd help him out around the shop. I can't remember now what the deal was. Maybe a few hours a week, I'd work for him, just by way of paying rent, paying for my place and his time. So I'd make. Uh, button blanks, rough out shell, any sort of simple prep work 
that was getting me used to working with the materials anyway. So I wasn't wasting my time. I was happy to help him out in any way I could. So it's very informal. And after I had a bit of experience, I started working for, uh, well, David Stone was there. David Stone's violin shop. I started doing rehearse for him. And that way I could earn a bit of money on the side. And so, I was playing music in Murphy's as well. There was a bit of money there too. So this is all in Seattle. This is before Chuck moved like to University, Port Townsend. University Way, yeah, northeast Seattle. Yeah, that yeah. was yeah. How much time did uh, did Charles spend on sharpening tools? Because I hear this when people go to violin school, a surprising number of. Uh, amount of time is spent initially learning how to sharpen tools yeah the way we sharpen is very different what we need is very different from violin makers and a violin maker would say a bow maker's knives aren't sharp so the way we sharpened in in uh, in in uh, chuck's shop was uh, quite we used diamond stones and water and it, it was quite uh it was uh, well. Let's say it's different to how I do it now. I don't. <laughs> I don't sharpen like that anymore. But that's how I learned it in uh, in uh, Chuck's, and it creates a, a rough edge that is quite. Uh, it, it's it. It's not very difficult to dress the edge on a diamond stone. So we didn't spend that much time learning how to sharpen. And I was a I was a woodwind maker, so I, a lot of this stuff. I had in my armory already, you know. There was a lot of the rudimentary stuff he didn't need to mention. Yeah. And it's at any trade, really, you learn by watching, much more so than talking. When I uh, first started playing Appalachian fiddle, I was living in central West Virginia, and uh, I think this was some of the best advice I ever got. And he said, pick a fiddler you really like, their music, and just watch their right hand holding the bow. Mm -hmm. Watch the wrist. Don't analyze. Don't think about it. Just watch it and keep watching that. And sure enough, three months later, I was playing a tune, and suddenly there was Glenn Smith's wrist. I was doing it. I had assimilated in some way. that's not. Yeah, it's not intentional. uh, You know, you can't get at it in a cookbook way, you know, here's the, here's how you do it. But, and I, I'm hearing that possibly in what you're talking about of watching uh, Charles work on a bow and seeing how he moved as he cut the wood. Exactly. Yeah. How he moved, how he held the workpiece, how he held the tool, the pressure, whether he's working hard, whether he's very relaxed, all that sort of stuff shows you the approach that's necessary to make one of these things. I love the fact this has to be transmitted physically in a space. Uh, YouTube, so many people are learning so many different things now on YouTube, and it is wonderful in many ways. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of information being made available. But uh, this idea that there's something else happens when you're physically in a space with someone. Yeah, there's no substitute for that. So actually be there and see someone do it. And like I say, I I think there's, there's much more. Well, it probably depends on the student. But I, I, I learn a lot more seeing it done than I would having it explained to me what's going on. So the, just to move the story forward after you left uh, working with Charles? Yeah, after those 10 months, uh, Charles announced that he was closing up shop. He was going sailing for six months. And I'd only made six or seven bows at that time, so I wasn't really... I had my notebook with all the method written out because it's long to get from A to Z in the process. There's a lot of information involved. So I had all that written down in me, in my notebook, and I used to work from that. But I wasn't confident enough. I wasn't ready to go off and work on my own. So... Chuck said you could uh, go to Paris and I said okay and uh, he called Stefan the guy who I'd met at the wedding those years ago 
and said, I've got this guy here. You met him at that wedding. Uh, He's been working with me for a year. He's really into it. Would could you could you, would you take him for a few months? So Stefan said okay, and uh, the next thing I knew, I was on a plane to Paris, and uh, back in that workshop where I'd met Charles Espy and Stefan Tomaszow, and um, uh, I worked there for uh, for uh, the couple of months that. Uh, well, I'd planned to go to Paris for a couple of months. That was the deal. And after six weeks, maybe, uh, Stefan said, so um, how long would you, or how long are you thinking of staying for? And I knew, because I'd heard the phone call, that um, I was there for eight weeks. And uh, But I thought, there's nothing else I can do. Uh, if I'm going to learn it, this is the best place one of the best workshops in the world to be in so I thought I'd chance my arm and I said well a couple of years and I remember uh, Stefan he didn't look up from his bench he didn't look at me he didn't look up from what he was doing he just carried on working and uh, thought about it for a minute and then said okay just carried on working so I was there for two years and that's where I learned it really I was watching Stefan for make bows for two years. When I when I arrived in his workshop, it took me three weeks to make a bow. Stefan was making six bows in a month. It was immediately apparent how much I had to learn. There was a vast chasm between what I was able to do and what Stefan was doing. So you have these bows you have made... Of course, they're your first bows. What was happening with them? Did you sell them? Uh, yeah, I'd sell them. I'd, I sold uh, most of those in Seattle to people that would be coming into Stefan's or to Chuck's workshop. And David Stone, I sold a few bows through his his shop as well. So there was a few. There's a few bows. Those very early bows are in Seattle. And what were you selling them for at that time? What would be the five hundred bucks? I remember. This was ni- 1989. I ri- arrived in Paris in September 89. And uh, I arrived with no bows. I had my tools, but I had no bow. And th- the first thing Stefan said when I went in, it was, show me a bow. And I didn't have anything to show because he-, he wanted to know what I could do. And I had nothing to show him. He said, okay, make a bow. And three weeks later, I had a bow to show him. So we were in, kind of in limbo for that first three weeks. Uh, he didn't know what this guy could do, what I, whether I was any good or not. And I needed to know how much can I sell one of my bows for in Paris? Because this was going to have a... I didn't... Uh, you had to live. Great, exactly, yeah. I had a great bear on whether I was going to be able to stay there or not. What's the uh, Irish expression? I just heard it. Is there much in it? Is that the expression? Is there much in it? Yeah. So somebody says you're, they're doing something, and somebody will say, is there much in it? Meaning, can you make a living from it? Is How there, much money, is there can, money in it, maybe? Yeah, but they don't use the word money. I know. No, no. I just heard this down where we were staying. Oh, yeah. Is there much in it? Yeah. Is there yeah. much in it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you were trying to figure out if there was yeah, much in I it. Yeah, I needed to... <laughs> I was, so... so those first three weeks, yeah, we were just kind of waiting around till I finished my bow. And I remember the first bow I made in his shop, I showed it to him and he had a look at it and was looking it up and down. And, and I just said to him straight out, how much can I sell that for on the Ruder Rope? And I remember he, he started laughing and said, not a lot. <laughs> Which is- I think kind of... Brought you down a peg or two, didn't it? <laughs> I knew right where I was on the ladder at that stage, yeah. Let's listen again as Kevin Burke plays a portion of a tune titled Evening Prayer Blues.
So um, once Stefan agreed uh, that I was going to be there for two years, I just became part of the furniture. I was there all the time and uh, made a lot of bows there. And I was doing all his restoration, all his repair work. So there was a lot of bows coming through. I was That was an important bow shop to be in. So I was meeting all Stefan's clients. Uh, collectors were coming in with uh, restoration work and I was doing all that. So I was getting to see old French bows. And that's that's very important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's essential to be able to uh understand get familiar with those uh the old makers those masters had uh there's a stylistic language in bow making and they all had an, uh, their own individual take on that and you need to learn that like any language or any Yeah, you need to learn like a language. It's like learning a language and then try and assimilate that into to creating a product of your own. And speaking about language, we have, haven't even brought this up, but do you speak French or? No. Stefan didn't have uh, much English, but it was better. Than, he had more English than, than I had French. So those two years in his workshop was all in English. And I didn't really learn French till I left Stefan's. When I left Stefan's, I st- stayed working in my apartment which was 400 yards down the road from Stefan's workshop. I, I had a little workshop there, and I stayed there for another three years, working, making my own bows, selling them on the road to Rome, and working for those same collectors, doing re- restoration and repair work, and doing all Stefan's repair work. So mention you've mentioned the street twice now. Tell me about the street. The Rue de Rome? Uh, the Rue de Rome is the centre of uh, violin making in Paris. The whole scene is on that street. And uh, I think it, it must have been the, the way in a lot of those old cities. London is the same, where different trades tend to be in different neighbourhoods. Tailoring is in one part of the town. Um, furniture making is in another part of town. And the violin and bow making was all on the Rue de Rome, down by the Gare Saint-Lazare. So you would go into the different shops with your bows and they would buy them or put them on consignment? How did that work? I'd, uh, when I, uh, the first thing I did when I arrived, the day I arrived in Paris was walk up and down the Rue de Rome. I'd been hearing about this place from Chuck for years. And I walked up and down the Rue de Rome and I counted 36 violin shops. So I thought, if I can't sell a bow here, I'm in the wrong business. So I, that's exactly what I did. That first bow that was made, I knocked on every door, showed it to them and asked, would you be interested in buying these things? And three or four of them said they would be interested. And the deal back then was um, a 50% commission to the shop, which suited me fine. All I wanted to do was uh, have some, all I needed was somewhere to sell these things rather than ended up with a, an apartment full of bows, I had to be able to sell them. So that if I was selling them for 50%, I didn't mind at all, as long as I could sell them. And at that time, I'd get 4,000 French francs, about the equivalent of about 400 pounds, maybe $600 at the time. And they'd double that and sell it to the customer for that. And after a year or two, I'd be told my bows are too cheap. And it was the dealers that guided me as far as price was concerned. And in no time at all, I was selling them for 3000 Oh, no. They were selling them for four. They probably went up to six, 6,000 French francs. And where were you getting your wood? Um, where did I bows? get my wood? Um first place I bought wood was in California a guy named Al Rubacek in Redwood City he supplied all the American bow making scene they all bought wood from him he was going down to Brazil he was the first American to go down there and source good Pernambuco and he was supplying all the American bow makers so it wasn't long before I got his name and I drove down there and uh bought a whole bunch of wood starting out um 
you don't really know what what's good wood and what's not good wood. And there's good, bad, and indifferent Pernambuco, and you have to learn that. So initially I'd bought a lot of not very good wood at all. But Chuck helped me out. I mean, he gave me maybe a dozen sticks. And they'd always be kept aside for if I for good bows, you know, if I got an order from someone, for example. And I took that wood to uh, to uh, Paris with me. Oh, you did? So, so yeah, you didn't come with a, s- a finished bow, but... No, but I had raw materials. Yeah. And um, uh, there was a, some wood became available and a few shops, uh, Stefan and a couple of lads on the Rue de Rome went in on this wood and uh i tagged along as well and uh, went in on them on, went in with them on this deal and we we bought a lot of pernambuco between four or five of us and 10 percent of it was mine it was small <laughs> i was the little guy tagged on the end i didn't get much but i got enough to keep me going for a couple of years and it was good wood it was good wood yeah, yeah. better than what i'd had yeah, i've heard uh, people talk about Using some kind of meter, the Luca meter. The Luki meter. Yeah, and other ways. How do you choose wood now? Now that you've had enough experience, I never used a Luki meter in my whole career. Could you explain what it is? It's a, um, a, 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 a some sort of sonar device that puts a measures density or something. Yeah, there's a transmitter and a receiver, and you put uh, it. The transmitter sends a signal through the the Pernambuco. You have to do it along the grain, so the air, put what, the transmitter on the end of the board and the receiver on the other end of the board, and you'll get a digital readout that's telling you how long it took that signal to get from one end of the board to the other, which of course is affected by the density of the material. And then there's a cal- calculation you can do to work out the relative density. But you never used one. I never of. used it. No, you can. So what do you do? You, you hold it. You tap I used it. to plane it, look at it, uh, hold it in my hands, and weigh it. You can feel how heavy this is. And the the Stefan used to say the Luki meter uh, is very useful for getting rid of the junk. The wood, there's no way you can make a bow out of it. It's too light. But when it comes to picking great wood. Uh, the Luki meter is it's misleading you can uh, there's a lot of great wood that uh, if you're relying on the soul uh, solely on a Luki meter there's a lot of great wood in there you'll miss because it doesn't score very highly on a Luki meter so I have other ways of uh, selecting it and trial and error of course the more bows you make the better you get to know the material and if the wood has a flaw or i guess what i don't know what the word you know not or does it ever have or irregularities and does that still sometimes make a great bow if you understand what it is and how to work it if you can work it yeah yeah it's more difficult if the if there's short grain you have to put it down the the handle end of the bow where you hold the bow rather than up the top end where it's very thin where the head is that grain it's essential that it's straight for the first eight ten inches of the bow but when it comes down the other end it can be a lot more forgiving and uh, as far as knots are concerned anything over a millimeter in diameter i wouldn't use it right because there's all this effort going into it yeah you'll either try and plane it out sometimes you can plane it out bend the stick see and plane it straight to get rid of a knot if there's a knot going through on one side of a of a stick but if you can't get rid of it and it's any bigger than the millimeter diameter, you're going to have to jettison the stick. You won't be able to use it. And is it just romanticism on my part to think that this, these pieces of wood, which in fact we see as solid, but we know from science isn't solid at all, right? It's all a bunch of molecules moving at the speed of light, really, yeah. with electrons that might or may not be where they're supposed to be, right? Yeah. Uh, when you really get down to kind of that quantum uh, understanding of the natural world. Do you sometimes just feel that a particular piece of wood communicates a sort of 
Uh, I'm really a prime candidate here. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first thing we do is sit down with a stick. There's a bunch of sticks behind you there. They're cut out from boards on a bandsaw, and they're about between 10 and 12, 12 millimeters square in section. And I take them to the, once they've been drying out in that form for five years, I take them to the bench and I rough out a stick. And roughing out is planing uh, an octagonal taper that's uh, a millimeter or two over the finished dimensions of the violin bow. So you plane the shape of the bow, but it's big at this stage. And then you heat it up and camber it. And once you once you've got the that stick roughed out, you have a very deep understanding of the stick and what type of bow it's going to be. And as we're making bespoke bows, there there's a client. This this is fulfilling a commission. It might not be the right stick for that client. You might have to rough out another and put that one to one side and and change the because it it might not. You'll know at that stage if this stick is going to give you the resulting bow that the customer wants. I'm fascinated by that process, how that can even be communicated from the musician. It has to be able to have some language or yeah, well, way of explaining what they're looking for. It's very difficult to be objective about it. That I find I learn most when they show me the bow that they play on. And then we have a reference point, so I can put into perspective everything they've they've told me about the kind of bow that they want, because they, this is the bow that they play. They they might really like the bow that they play, or there might be aspects of it that they don't like, or they might not like it at all. But we need that as a reference. So when you say you want a strong bow, I need to know what what is a strong bow to you, because everyone has a different idea and the bow is it's a spring is all it is like a like a suspension spring on a car all it is is a spring that you put under tension when you tighten it up get the hair up to playing height and all it's doing is its sole function is to hold that ribbon of hair flat and everything else is secondary really it's just a spring that stick and the flexibility of the stick is what the musician feels i think that's the core uh aspect of the bow that gives it its character is flexibility rather than weight balance they all have a a, a big enough effect weight balance strength speed of response but the the flexibility is uh fascinating subject in itself because a bow can be very strong but flexible which seems not to make sense you'd think you'd think yeah, a little counterintuitive yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. And, and all and things that appeal case. to me have that character i think people even play golf or something you know the appeal is it's not how hard you hit the ball it's it's this weird thing of sometimes not hitting it as hard as you might yeah. think you should and yeah. yet it flies further yeah you know, but I you hit that. the sweet spot and it's just how did i do that yeah, exactly. it's a very similar thing yeah to to that yeah have you made bows where um as you're starting to rough out the stick and maybe you're thinking of a client maybe you're not but you just suddenly say oh this is going to be a lot of fun this bow wherever yeah. it goes yeah. is special yeah well i'm in the lucky position now that uh all the wood I'm using, all the sticks I have are great. So I'm having a lot of fun making bows. Whereas initially, when you're starting out, you might rough out five or six sticks and pick the best one because they've all got an issue that's... Uh, they've all got a little problem or they're, they're, you're not really happy with this one. You rough out another one to see if that's... Uh, so it's all time-consuming. Whereas now, I have a whole bunch of lovely wood. And I know it very well. I've been working with it for 20 years. It all comes from the same source. So there's, there's, uh, there's similar characteristics in my stock. There's maybe, I don't know, half a dozen different types of wood in there. And I, I, uh, I know the wood well. 
So that initial stage of roughing out sticks, trying to find a good one and wondering, is this one going to work? Or uh, That's gone. That element isn't there anymore. I know right from that off what's what stick to use. I I rough I, I write the client's name on the stick before I rough them out. So you're thinking about them too. While you're yeah, doing- I select the stick in that that um, square stage off the bandsaw. I know what they're what sort of bow that's that I can make from that. And are you still acquiring wood, or do you have enough wood? No, no, I have enough wood for two lifetimes now. So I figure uh, eventually I'll, uh, I'm 52 now, so I'm going to go through my whole stock and cut it all up, and I'll select wood for the rest of my career, figure out how many bows I've got in me, and I'll sell the rest of it to young bow makers. And do you ever feel that you'll lose interest in this? Lose interest? No. Oh, definitely not. I'm doing it 30 years now, I think. 1989. 28 years I'm doing it. And uh, it's difficult to make a bow. And it's still difficult. And I think that's what keeps your, uh, your interest alive in it. It's always a challenge to sit down and make a great bow. And so that the it never gets easy, and so it never gets boring. So say just a few words, if you would, about the emergence of uh, carbon fiber and different synthetic materials and uh, how that impacts this tradition. Uh, well, um, as you might know, um, Pernambuco is a protected species, the the um, trade in the raw material is strictly controlled. It's CITES listed in Category 2. And um, so we've been experimenting with alternative woods and alternative materials like carbon fibre for about 20 years now. And we have found some, there's Ipe, for example, then there's ironwood. There's a few woods that are being used um the problem i see it is that uh because we've been using pernambuco for so long and pernambuco has the qualities that it has the uh, strength flexibility it's a great acoustic wood that i think to a large degree uh the bow has become pernambuco if you change the material, it's a, well, it's still a bow, but it, it's it's a, it's a different kind of bow. It's gonna it's gonna play differently. It's gonna sound differently. It's gonna respond differently in the hand. And uh, carbon fiber is the same. It works great, but I think uh, it it'll never have the acoustic qualities of of uh, of great Pernambuco. Because you were talking about this, that you know, the fact it's this really a spring. That's what it is, the bow. But you've mentioned in passing the acoustic characteristic, and this is very obvious to me. I can take my violin and pick up six bows in a violin shop. It's remarkable how the violin sounds different with each bow. Sure, yeah. The bow is in contact with the violin, so it's going to vibrate. It's going to resonate in sympathy with the violin. You feel it when you in your right hand when you play it. The bow is vibrating. And so it's moving air and creating sound? It's moving the string. The hair is moving the string, and that's going down, the, those vibrations, that energy is going down through the bridge right. and setting that volume of air in motion. And that's what pops out of the fiddle yeah. and hits you in the ear. But it's such a different sound. I mean, the tonal quality, when you play one bow versus another on a violin, I still don't quite understand how that happens. But some, it's very clear it does. Yeah, because, I think it's because it's in contact with the instrument, quite simply. Yeah. Some bows will be too heavy for the instrument, and they'll mute the instrument. Uh, another bow might be too uh, light or weak, 
not strong enough to give the violin the kick that it needs to uh, to to sound. Do what it can do. Do you have clients that uh, have different bows for different types of music they yeah, play? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bows will play differently. Bows from different periods. Uh, early French bows and late French bows. The camera is very different. The balance is very different. They feel different in the hand. They sit differently on the string. So a musician might be playing classical, but then also like to play jazz, would possibly have a different bow? Yeah, even in the classical world, they'll have three or four different bows in the case. For different? For different repertoire. Oh. Yeah. It's good for bow makers. It's great for bow makers. <laughs> there was a quote by Emerson, and I'm I'll probably not exactly get it right, but basically it has to do with when you fire a gun. The bullet goes out, all this force, you know, goes forward, but there's a recoil. There's something that happens to you in the course of this thing. And I think he was talking about writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think any real involvement in the arts, we begin to realize that as we shape the bow, the bow in this process is shaping us as people. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah. So can you speak at all to that? And, And maybe it's something that goes beyond words, but how has it changed your character, the person you are? Um, I'm a lot more finicky than I used to be. Um, In a good way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, maybe I was always like that and it took me a while to work that out. But my approach to bow making has become my approach to many, many, many things in uh, the rest of my life. Yeah, and I was never like that before. And physically too. Because it's a physical act. Sit down at this thing. There's there's no machines. You're pushing chisels, cutting knives. It's ebony, pernambuco, ivory, hard materials to work. Physically, your body changes. You can see a bowmaker that we all have hands that look like a bowmaker's hands after 30 years of uh, making bows. It changes you, definitely. And what about the toxicity issues is that something um i've never had a problem touch wood i have i have a that's not strictly true i have a problem with shell these parts of the frog are a wabi shell from japan and it's uh, very heavy dust it's uh, quite toxic and um i had uh, an issue with that but i went to uh um, an allergologist, I think you call it, a, a doctor that specialises in the study of allergies. And she put me on a series, of, she gave me a bunch of tests and put me on a series of injections for a year or two and built up an immunity. And if I, I don't have a problem with anything in the shop, but I still wear a mask, that dust mask up there for if I'm filing on show. But the, for the rest of the time, I'm completely fine. They say we have to go through the world and at least eat a pound of dirt before we're we're gone, just in the course of being human beings. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I love that expression. Yeah. You know, as kids, you know, we just we just eat a pound of dirt, or, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So we, when, we don't when they, eat. People don't eat enough dirt anymore. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't. I think they need more, especially the kids. But uh, when they finally put you in the coffin, you know, there'll be there'll be traces of permabuco and all these materials, and yeah. you know, it'll be in yeah. your body. I don't know why, why that popped to mind but um one thing i'd like to say about the bow is that um uh, i don't think people realize a lot of musicians too don't realize how important it is to their pursuit of making music the the violin is uh very important and uh, a lot of musicians spend their career looking for a great violin but if they sat down and think about it that the most of the 90 percent more of the the musical uh, expression is coming through the bow through the right hand the the rhythm and uh uh, whether you want to play loud or soft or all that the left hand is doing really is playing the notes getting the notes right 
and vibrato, but the, all the rest of the musical expression is coming through the bow. And I think a lot of uh, uh, fiddle students starting out would be much better served getting a good bow to get a feel of what a good bow is. You play the violin with the bow. You need to know how to use a good bow and what a good bow is. And a lot of, uh, rather than spending loads of money on a fiddle and getting a mediocre bow, I'd say that the smart thing to do is get a good bow and the, the rest will follow. That bow will find its violin. Hmm. Because you have the bow. I love it. Last question. Any weird coincidental things happen? Bows that missed uh, coincidences where you met somebody you never expected. I love that kind of stuff. There's just any stories that pop out over the course of that career. But you might think of it five minutes after I leave. What? People that I've met? or Well, just, uh, you know, the coincidental story. The, uh, the person you met who got a violin from you. Let me give you an example of... Uh, we talked to a woman who sells violin wood in Italy, a wonderful gal. And just in the course of thinking about things that have happened, she one time got a phone call. Because I asked her, you know, do people come and tap the wood? She has stacks of this beautiful spruce uh, from the, from the uh, Fiemme Valley. And she said, uh, well, I once had a man call me on the telephone from Norway. And he was a retired violinist, and he had decided to make a violin. And he had her tap it, you know, using the telephone. And he said, yeah, that's the one. Send that to me. And he sent. And then he called her up after he'd made it, and he played her a piece of music over the telephone. And it really touched her somehow. And then he passed away not long after that. But mm -hmm. his violin sort of had, you know, come into being through this weird contraption called the telephone. So mm -hmm. anything you can think of. I don't think so. There was an odd thing that happened in San Francisco. I was walking down the street in San Francisco with a bow box under my arm, a box with a couple of bows in it, and it was raining. Everyone was in a hurry. It was raining really heavily. And a woman uh, was coming towards me, and we kind of bumped into each other. But, um, she said, uh, what you got in the box? And I get asked that a lot. Is that a pool cue or, uh, you know, and I said, oh, it's bows, I'm a bow maker. And it turned out she was a cellist and I got an order standing in the rain there in San Francisco. I made her a bow. A year later, I made her a bow. And that, that was the most unusual circumstance to get an order for a bow. It's bumping into someone in the street. Have you kept a bow? that you've made, that you just are keeping for family or? Um, I started last year to, uh, like I said, I'm 52 now. Every year I make a bow for myself and I just put it away thinking they'll be handy to have when I'm an old codger and my fingers aren't as clever as they are now. <laughs> so yeah, I do that, but I've, like I say, I only started doing that last year. And I haven't made this one, this year's one yet. So I've got one bow, one gold-mounted viola bow that I, that's mine. And I'll make another one before the end of this year. Make a little collection. That's great. Thank you very much. Really You're, appreciate taking the it time. It was a pleasure, Joe. Thanks a million. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. That's R-O-S-I-N-T-H-E-B-O-W.org. And I have heard that picking just the right violin bow can be, well, a bit daunting. It seems only yesterday that your mother and father were in here buying their first ones. Ah. Here we are. 
give it a wave. Apparently not. <laughs>